And welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast, and my name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> so we announced last week at the end of last week's episode that for September's bonus, we will be doing God of War 2018. Yeah. Which for longtime listeners, I think that might be kind of a double meaning because like one it makes sense it's maybe the most sense our bonus has made in terms of like what is leading up to in terms of release schedule ragnarok coming out in november yeah which is kind of shocking but this is also a game that i haven't played up until now it has been (laughs) no joke four years since i've uttered the (laughs) phrase i'll get to it eventually And, you know, there's this weird pressure that we sometimes feel, especially with games that like we need to have played it right when it came out. Like even outside of doing the show, like I have friends who they'll finally play a game like three years after it came out. And they're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I should have played it when it came out. And I get that. Like I literally feel that way hugely right now, which I'll get to. Uh But it's like when it finds you, it finds you. Yeah. There are games we have talked about on this show that like we might bring up when it comes out and have like, you know, like, yeah, it's cool. And then we'll get back to it years later. And be like, that was amazing. You had. Are you thinking about the same game? What game are you thinking about? With Death Stranding. Yeah. I was just about to say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Death Stranding was a pretty like transformative experience for the way I even think about when I play games specifically. Yeah. Just because I was. I don't want to say negative about it the first time. I thought it was like hugely ambitious, but it definitely wasn't the right time for me to be playing it right when it came out. And then revisiting it when I did was like like an epiphany but it also yeah. i i think to where you're getting w- with this point specifically i think it's better that it happened this way i think it's like yeah. it, and in your case with god of war it's like sure i mean whenever you get to enjoy it that's great it's it's not you being an idiot for not playing it in 2018 it's you having a great time now in 2022 exactly i do feel a little bit clownish though because where i stopped is like one really early and like seconds before the game like crescendos into a masterpiece it's as if i walked out of les mis before javert showed up you know like it's just like what what was i what 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 pulled me away i mean i will say like i don't think the game has a slow start but i do think it doesn't become what everyone talks about for a little bit into it Mm -hmm. like it, it feels very much like what if God of War was The Last of Us, and it's like it's like well done, it's good. Yeah. Like the open, I remember we talked about the opening scene, like when I had played that, and like I feel like a lot of the Sony first party games are very much like they're very much trying to emulate like a blockbuster film. I mean, Uncharted is obviously trying to recreate like Indiana Jones and that style of like a blockbuster. Right. Last of Us is trying to recreate like a more dramatic kind of Oscar winning movie in some ways. And then God of War, I think, and maybe it's just because it's the most recent on my mind, but I think kind of immediately shows a much stronger understanding of film than even those other two games in the sense of like the lighting and like what we're seeing, what's kind of being communicated visually. Kratos is a character that like just sort of grunts or says single phrases. So like we actually do have to rely on the camera and like the mood of a scene to really understand what's going through his mind Mm -hmm. so like that's all on display in the very beginning and that's super impressive but i think in terms of how the game plays and how those two aspects intertwine that doesn't become clear until you've kind of played through the tutorial so i don't even know how many hours in i am at this point but i really really love it and i can't wait 
to talk about it more in detail. Yeah, you're further than me in this playthrough already, uh, which is pretty <laughs> wild because yeah. e- even even last week when I started playing it for that bonus, I I dumped way more time into it than I than I thought I was going to. Um, in like a couple days, I really got sucked back into it in a way I wasn't expecting. It's it's stellar. That's gonna be a fun episode to talk about. I'm really excited yeah. for it. Yeah, and it's also I feel kind of spoiled now because I only have to wait like eight weeks <laughs> yeah. until the sequel comes out and not four years yeah but uh you know again i'm glad i'm finally playing it now i've had a physical copy of it i do find that when i ironically when i have a physical copy of a game it's it's a it takes longer for me to get to it and Mm. it sounds like very lazy but just the act of having to like go to my bookshelf and like (laughs) pull it out and take out whatever is in the system like usually i have like one physical game in the system that's like ready like in on the switch i have mario kart 8 deluxe physical copy for whatever reason yeah so that's like usually in there and then the rest is digital i love that in theory like imagine going back to nintendo 64 having steven (laughs) i mean i still have i'm still that guy well i know but but imagine like 1990s steven hearing that coming out of your mouth how funny would that be like yeah like that was an era where like you had to like put a cartridge in and try a few times yeah. to get it to go. You know, it wasn't even like guaranteed that it was going to work. Right. Or like, you know, put peanut butter on a CD to repair it or some weird thing. Someone told you did something. Toothpaste. Tooth- was it toothpaste? It was toothpaste. I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it is it is funny. I mean, I, I'm glad I have a lot of these physical copies. That's a whole other conversation about physical media. But uh, I do like the convenience of just being able to switch between them. It's kind of miraculous. <laughs> anyway, more on God of War uh, in the very near future. Also plugging, um, we're going to be doing our Patreon episode for this month. It's going to kind of be a companion piece to God of War. We're going to be rereading Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology and having a discussion about that. I imagine that will be like obviously largely about the book, but I, I can't help but imagine we will also talk about sort of the depictions of certain gods and stories in God of War yes. and how they compare to each other. Yes. Because already I know of like a few that I'm like, oh, that's cool that like the two dwarven brothers who like are the blacksmiths like i think they make mjolnir in that tale they do um so there's a lot of cool stuff like that yeah the revelations of like who certain characters are in relation to norse mythology has been really cool so far so like i have i've actually also been slowly revisiting some of the earlier god of war games just like to have a comparison point because i played them when they came out but i don't really remember them at all and what's interesting is like i do think that there's always been a strong interest in mythology. I think like one of the selling points of the series has always been like, you're going to get to see all these gods and these creatures, but there's kind of like, I mean, not even kind of, there's like a cruelty to that in the older games where like they just sort of exist to be massacred yeah, in some ways where I feel like there's a much stronger like admiration for mythology in, in the 2018 one. And I think that's also like by virtue of having Atreus, like he's the character who is interested in the world and like wants to like learn like, languages and lore and like is in awe of the world serpent and stuff like that because kratos can really only kill things that's like his whole brand (laughs) and he knows that and atreus his son is the one who's like i actually want to like connect with the world right anyway more on that next month i gotta restrain myself here yeah um so yeah (laughs) anyway the the link to the patreon uh and pretty much everything else twitter instagram youtube twitch all that stuff is at into the cast online so if you want to hear that norse mythology bonus you can head over there um but yeah i'm i'm very much looking forward to that one uh can i can i tell you about some other games that have been very interesting to play alongside god of war yes please based on our conversation from last week we were talking about lara croft go 
um, which I did yeah. revisit, to be clear. I downloaded all three of them. I still haven't played Deus Ex Go. I got to get on that. But even conversations in the Discord have kind of put that on the back burner for me because people were like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I have it. I might as well. Yeah. It seems like Lara Croft Go and Hitman Go were the bigger hits, yeah. conceptually, at least. Yeah. But based on that conversation, we talked a little bit about the Tomb Raider series, Tomb Raider 2013, and, and then Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, uh, a trilogy of games that came out around then that you and I didn't really play that much of or at all um no i i got 2013 on sale like probably like when we were doing the show but like i played it very briefly something about it just didn't work for me and i again very early on but like i mentioned this last week there's like really gratuitous death scenes for Lara in that game that just felt like really out of place and I just sort of moved on yeah. after playing a bit of that. That's what I'd heard a lot of about 2013 yeah. uh, when it came out and was like, I'm kind of uninterested in that. Yeah. And I decided because they were all on sale, there was like a, there was a sale for the trilogy on PlayStation like while we were recording. It was all three of them for 20 bucks and decided like, you know what? Let me give these a shot. See how I feel about them because uh, yeah. as you had mentioned and as I had heard as well, Rise of the Tomb Raider and Shadow of the Tomb Raider were like pretty well received, um, even if Tomb Raider 2013 was a little bit, I would say, faltering in its execution of what it was trying to do. So I said, you know what, I'm going to give these a shot. And my thought going into this episode was I am going to play Tomb Raider 2013. Next week, I'll do Rise of the Tomb Raider. The week after, I'll do Shadow of the Tomb Raider and like see how that feels, um, you know, if I like them enough, of course. And I started playing Tomb Raider 2013. And what I will say about that game is that everything you and I had heard was like right on the money. The death scenes are extremely gratuitous. It's like it's filled with quick time events and they specific instead of like any other game where you fail a quick time event and then it just kind of like you fail and it ends and then you reload back to where you were. Anytime you fail a quick time event is like let's zoom in on Lara as she loses the life in her eyes and we're going to animate that as she gets like absolutely ruined by whatever it is that you were trying to prevent from the quick time event so that's like getting crushed by rocks or falling onto spikes or getting like strangled to death by a dude uh there are like a billion different things that can happen to lara croft in that game that are all just horrible to watch uh and yeah. it's also because of 2013 it like came out kind of in the like the dying exhalation of you know games inspired by uh kind of sepia filter coffee filter aesthetic of like call of duty yeah. 4 and fallout 3 and these worlds that like are trying to be realistic but in doing so end up just looking oppressive and it's like i i don't want to be here that's kind of the vibe also of the locale in tomb raider it actually fits tomb raider the same way it kind of fits fallout 3 where it's like the place is supposed to be hostile you're supposed to be like trapped in this in this island that you can't escape that is like trying to kill you at all times so it kind of does make sense for the game aesthetically to feel like I don't know what to do. I don't know where to move to. It all looks kind of like the same because you're lost in a jungle. Like that totally makes sense in a way. But I, I found it to be like, actively unfun to play but i did appreciate some of the stuff that they were doing by way of like character and story in that game specifically like the idea of that game is lara is going with a friend of hers to find an island off the coast of japan that may or may not house like the tomb 
hence the name Tomb Raider, <laughs> of uh, like an ancient Japanese deity who may or may not have been real and may or may not be related to Lara's friend. And like the quest is to go find if that's true. But in doing so, obviously everything goes wrong. There's like an army of like weird mercenaries that are also looking for the tomb. There are like the people who live on the island who are trying to protect the tomb. There are all of these forces just kind of like trying to prevent Lara from finding this thing. And I appreciate all of that. I think it's fun specifically because you're seeing Lara at this point where like it seems like she's kind of I don't want to say like right out of college but she's like pretty young and like inexperienced at doing this and that's the point of the game like that's the arc of that game right is like her kind of just being put through the ringer and coming out stronger on the other end but unfortunately like they really loved animating her being put through the ringer and it feels like uncomfortable to watch like it almost feels like this game about like Lara being a survivor and growing into the Tomb Raider that we know and love as a character and and trying to say like almost this like feminine empowerment thing almost gets undermined by how gratuitous all of the death yeah, is. Right. It, al- it almost feels male gazy in the opposite direction and like almost like honestly just misogynistic in a way. Uh, it, it I, I found it to be really uncomfortable to play and at a certain point I put it down. I played I would say about half of that game and then I put it down and I watched the rest of it on YouTube which was like fine. You know, that's not the that's not the best way to experience those games, definitely. Yeah. But I knew I knew in myself that if I had forced myself to sit down and play another session of Tomb Raider 2013, I would have put it down and not moved on to the sequels. And I really wanted to see what Rise was all about, at least before like giving up entirely. Yeah. So I put it down, I watched the rest on YouTube. I found it to be fine. The story is okay. You know, Lara survives, believe it or not, uh, at the end, <laughs> and then goes on to star in another video game, uh, which is Rise of the Tomb Raider. And Rise of the Tomb Raider is very interesting. Because this, you know, it's worth mentioning that these games were uh, made by, I think, Crystal Dynamics and then released, you know, published by Square Enix. This was kind of early on in the Square Enix, like having a bunch of Western studios and anytime they released a game being like this underperformed, even though it was like the number one selling game of the week or whatever. Right. Which was very silly. But Rise of the Tomb Raider specifically, I didn't I didn't know this. You and I talked about this a little bit off the show, but it launched the exact same day as Fallout 4. It only launched on Xbox because Microsoft was a publishing partner. Microsoft was also a publishing and launch partner for Fallout and needed to choose which one of those two things to market and obviously picked Fallout because Fallout is a multi-platform game. It came out on all platforms at launch. So Xbox really needed to flex like this is the place to play it, even though it wasn't. You could play it anywhere. Xbox like really (laughs) needed to say like, we want to convince you to be playing this on Xbox. That was also the Xbox One era where they were like really needing to convince you of anything. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So there was that. But also Rise of the Tomb Raider was an Xbox exclusive for at least over a year. Um, And this game also came out, speaking of bad release timing, one week after Halo 5. Uh, So, (laughs) oh, my God, just like the Xbox confluence of nonsense, essentially, like buried this game when it came out. But it reviewed really well and did really well. And people seemed to like it like it was critically like favored. People seem to like it a lot and didn't launch, I think, on the PlayStation or maybe maybe even PC until over a year later. I started playing this game kind of just knowing that people liked it and not really knowing anything else about it um, outside of Square Enix saying that it was a commercial disappointment. And it is like a complete 180 from the first game. It is 
so spectacular in so many ways that I Hell like yeah. I'm really surprised by it specifically playing it alongside God of War because God of War as you were just saying like it is trying to be one of those kinds of games right it is like a third person over the shoulder narrative heavy cinematic experience single player story driven thing that you know purports to also be an open world at times and has all of these side quests and interesting things to do Rise of the Tomb Raider is doing all of that stuff as well but it imbues it because of I think the DNA of the 2013 version it imbues it with all of this like survival horror kind of stuff that i think actually works really well so like Lara ends up stuck in the Siberian wilderness for a while and needs to like get a bow and arrows and like start hunting again, just like she did in the first game. Um, the thing about the first game is that you learn to do all of that stuff. You like get a bow and arrow and start to hunt stuff. And then they like kind of immediately drop it when you get guns. Like you can still upgrade your bow and use it in combat. And that's like very good and worth doing. But the whole idea of like needing to survive by like hunting for meat and skins and stuff like doesn't really exist at a certain point in two. Raider 2013 and I appreciate that Rise of the Tomb Raider like allows you to still do that stuff it still has wildlife around but you don't need it 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 doesn't put the emphasis on it the same way they did in the first game where it's like this is actually what the game is the game is about her surviving and hunting Rise of the Tomb Raider is like yeah she knows how to do that already so you can do that if you want to and there's like a whole skill tree of like (laughs) it's a hobby yeah Yeah. exactly there's like a whole skill tree of points that you can upgrade if you do all that stuff you can then upgrade your equipment more because you've like gone hunting and stuff and that's kind of the big difference I think that's the big differentiator for this game is like there's this big open world area you can go hunting you can go upgrading and finding all of these different like relics and like old uh golden coins from like a bygone era and stuff um the big i would say the big big thing is that this game is about raiding tombs like that's you're actually raiding tombs in tomb raider 2 uh which is really fun they have hidden throughout the open world areas and i i shouldn't even call it an open world it's more like open zone in the way that like i would say um like Uncharted 4 or uh, Lost Legacy. Kind of like that. What is the Mario game we just played? Oh, Bowser's Fury. It's 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 oh. open in the way like Bowser's Fury is where there are like areas in which you can like go and platform and explore stuff. And every once in a while, you'll find just like a hole in the wall. And if you kind of shimmy through it, it'll be like, oh, my God, here's a whole tomb that becomes this whole entire like environmental storytelling slash like environmental puzzle experience where you need to like find your way through this area to get to a pedestal, which will have some kind of artifact on it, which will teach Lara to do something that is like completely wild, you know, that that'll be like, oh, now for some reason, uh, all wildlife is highlighted in red whenever you're running around because Lara has just like learned the like mystic truth of whatever is happening here, which is, I think, a, a good segue into what the game is actually about, which is where I think this really excels and I think makes it makes a better point at this is Lara growing into the Tomb Raider we know and love than the first game does because the first game the whole idea behind it is just like let's just beat the shit out of her and Rise of the Tomb Raider is a much more interesting like character study of Lara in a way it reminds me a little bit of Uncharted 4 honestly Um, in that the game is a little bit about it's worth mentioning that Lara is like wildly wealthy I don't think that's like a thing that most people like remember about her but she's like a billionaire she's like inherited She's kind of like a Bruce Wayne type character in retrospect. Exactly. A lot of the reason that she can go do the things that she does in the Tomb Raider series is because she has like the wealth to do things that nobody else would ever think to fund. In the very first PlayStation game, you can do a tutorial, which is just in her mansion. And she has like a obstacle course in the backyard. I say backyard and I mean like a small town. Right. You know, like it's sort of like where she can practice. It's very funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this game is kind of about that. Like it, it, it pulls 
pulls that aspect of her life into it in a really big way. Specifically, the whole idea is that her dad essentially died at a certain point trying to chase after this, what he thought was like some kind of secret of immortality called the divine source and essentially was like ridiculed for it. You know, it was like he made these like billions of dollars and then kind of fell off the face of the map. And there were a lot of like essentially like paparazzi and and like gossip rags essentially writing these pieces about him being like, hey, I forget his name. Uh, I'm just going to call him Lord Croft because that's what a lot of people call him in the game. Um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, isn't it awesome? Uh, but anyway, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Lord Croft has like completely lost it. He's like chasing after, you know, something like Holy Grail adjacent. Like he's, you know, just like pissing his money away, essentially. And even Laura at the time when she was a kid at seeing her dad do this, like that was really upsetting for her. It was really like really kind of like a mortifying experience to like be associated with this man who was like chasing after a thing that was like clearly not real. Um, right. And, you know, just like dumping all of their money down the drain in the process. But what I really appreciate about this game, and it's very loose connection to the first one, at least, is like Lara sees an actual like mysterious supernatural event happen in the first game. Like, obviously, as with all Indiana Jones movies and all Uncharted movies, like everything that you think is definitely like some kind of like made up interpretation of an old folktale is actually true. Oh, my God, the city of Atlantis is real. Oh, my God, the the Ark of the Covenant is real. You know, the Holy Grail is real, et cetera, et cetera. All of these stories end the same way. And Tomb Raider 2013 does as well. Sorry to spoil it. But like, I mean, that's the genre. But Rise of the Tomb Raider kind of starts with that for her rise of the tomb raider is like well now that i've seen this happen maybe my dad like wasn't totally gone like maybe he was onto something maybe this thing that he was chasing was real because she's like now that i've seen this i kind of believe anything and it's like worth investigating at least and in doing so essentially like trips up this this weird like kind of mega religious sect of mercenaries called trinity that has apparently existed for like thousands of years and it feel it feels very much like last crusade in that way where there's like a bunch of people like protecting the holy grail in a way but in this case these are people who are like upset that the holy grail still exists and wants to go like pick it up and use it for their own you know nefarious deeds or whatever so it sends you around the world as all of these games should and all of these stories should uh where you end up like following the trail of who they call the prophet in this game they call them the immortal prophet but it's definitely like they just didn't want to say jesus like they definitely just in the video game (laughs) didn't want to say like we're following and trying to find the tomb of jesus christ yeah so they just call him the immortal prophet and they're like essentially finding all of these documents that say that trinity was going after the prophet because they you know he was saying like i'm the son of god i'm immortal you can't kill me whatever trinity's like we're gonna prove that you can die and then they go send a bunch of assassins after him to go kill him and they do and then he comes back to life as he does in like the bible you know he gets murdered put in a tomb and then suddenly the rock that is guarding the tomb is gone uh and jesus is like hanging out and he's got his apostles still and he's like back and like doing his thing so essentially trinity is like stuck in a rock in a hard place uh for back of a letter for back of a lack of a oh my god what am i saying for lack of a better (laughs) phrase where they're like well we sent a guy to kill him And then he came back to life. The guy swears that he killed him and saw him die. 
so this guy must also be a heretic. And then they take out their own member because they're like, he's also lying to us. This, this prophet guy is definitely like a grifter, <laughs> which is really funny. Um, but now, like thousands of years later, they're like, maybe he was onto something also. So Lara and Trinity, the group, are both kind of in this same space where they're like, maybe there is some truth to this. Maybe there is some kind of secret to immortality that we can find. And that's kind of what the game is about, is about like Lara starting to recognize the fact that like maybe there are there's more to the world than she thinks. You know, it's not just archaeology and finding ruins but maybe some of this stuff like can be real followed by a group of like hyper religious zealots essentially demanding to find and kill the son of god because they're like he's a threat to all of mankind by existing because he's some kind of heretic as well but all of this and the reason i was connecting it to uncharted 4 in the first place all of this is kind of serving this larger thing that's like what goes through the mind of somebody like Lara croft who is like literally putting herself in life or death situations over and over and over and over again again to find something that might be a complete lie and find something that is like at the end of the day like maybe just a relic in a tomb somewhere what i appreciated about the game is that it's constantly presenting her with other figures in her life sometimes from the first game sometimes new people that you haven't met before but like in general she's meeting a lot of characters who are challenging her on this and saying like i can't go and climb this you know, horrifying Mount Everest style mountain with you just because there might be a cave up there, dude. Like we're all going to yeah. die. <laughs> we're going to die of frostbite. Like if something goes wrong, that's it for us. And she is now in a position where she's putting herself through the ringer, which is where I find this game succeeds more than 2013 did where like, right instead of being thrust into this position where she has kind of like no agency over it and is like, I just need to survive, but then is dying in horrible, gruesome ways over and over and over again. Rise of the Tomb Raider is about her being like, I choose to do this, but then also asking the question, like, why would anyone choose to do this? Yeah, um, exactly. And in doing so is like wildly successful. It's like it's it's a much better read on Lara Croft, I think, as a character study, which I think a lot of these games that are trying to be these like, you know, big kind of cinematic third person action adventure narrative games are trying to be or like character studies god of war is a great example of that you know last of us uncharted all those things when when they are at their best they're character studies of the protagonist um, yeah absolutely this is a much 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 better character study of who Lara croft is and will become than i think the first game is uh in that way it also just looks stunning i mean even compared to the first game which i was kind of dunking on aesthetically this game is just so beautiful it reminds me so much of like the high points of uncharted except you know those games are all about bringing you from set piece to set piece and this game is about being an open exploration area that every once in a while will have just like pockets that you can stumble upon that are these like giant bombastic beautiful architected tombs that are like really stunning to behold i'm just like really kind of blown away by this game i I think like mechanically it's really fun i don't even need to get super into that but i just think it's like it's a really exhilarating experience to like run around and uh you know climb up and down zip lines and like use your ice picks to like climb up the sides of walls and ice walls and things like that the combat is like surprisingly great you know i i think the first game kind of struggles with this idea that lara is like becoming a a killing machine you know like the first time she has to take a life in the first game is a scene that everybody always talks about because it's like really effective but then also you get into this like looter narrative dissonance kind of situation further in the game where like okay you had a whole scene about how hard it was for her to kill one person and now she's presented with like a kind of nathan drake style gauntlet of like 50 (laughs) guys and she like headshots all 
all of them with a bow. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's a wildly different character. And this game is like, we're not really interested in that. We're just interested in the fact that there are bad guys and you have all the tools you need to get rid of them. Um, and kind of turns into, the first game had this a bit, but the second game is like really killing it. It becomes like an Arkham Asylum kind of thing where you are sneaking around and like hiding on treetops and stuff and jumping down and taking people out secretively um, or like throwing cans and bottles to distract them uh, so they'll like separate from the group. Um, it becomes like a really successful stealth game also in, in these moments, uh, but oscillates between them in ways that are like video gamey in a way I appreciate. I feel like Arkham City and Arkham Knight eventually got to this point where it's like, yes, Gotham City is this like wide open space, but every once in a while you can like jump onto a rooftop and now you're doing a stealth section. Like Rise of the Tomb Raider does not care about that, like that kind of seamless gap between the two of them. It's like, you'll just like fall down a well and then be like, you know, get up and you're just like, oh shit, stealth section, which is fine. I don't mind that yeah. at all. I actually kind of appreciate that hard cut between gameplay styles. Yeah, that's, that's actually what I've been enjoying a lot about God of War, weirdly enough, because I mm. think like, especially going back to like playing the first game, God of 05 <laughs> War, if you want to call it yeah. that, that game is very much like a relic of the time for better and very much for worse. Like I think it's mm, like, you know, it's yeah. sort of a, a mashup of like PS2 action games at the time. You can see like the seed planted of like what this series would do well, which is spectacle, you know, and which totally, is like, yeah. Arca- like honestly, the Sea Hydra boss is still pretty fucking cool. <laughs> it makes you say cool like Beavis and Butthead out loud. Um, but I think <laughs> what I love about the old God of War games and what I especially like in 2018, which sounds like it might be at odds, but like the game never forgets to have enemies explode into a million trinkets and power ups. <laughs> and to me, that adds so much levity to what would normally be like grotesque. Yeah, like right. in God of War 2018, like I have never really felt like that adrenaline since I've seen Mad Max. Fury Road, which I would compare God of War 2018 to that movie in some ways in terms of how it depicts action and like the sort of driving force of the plot um, Mm -hmm. and just that they're both good and I like them both. But like (laughs) that dragon fight is so cinematic and it's such an important moment in the story and it marks a huge turning point in the story, in my opinion for for the character of Kratos especially but again like in in motion it's still very much like it's exactly like the sea hydra where Kratos defeats this giant creature in an overwhelming display of like brutality and weird creativity and then it explodes into trinkets and power-ups and like (laughs) something about just like not even bothering to hide that it's like yeah we're still a video game it's still gonna be like rewarding you in this way and you know exactly what this moment means there there is power to that I think there is like depends on the experience you're trying to provide like it is helpful to have it like hidden in some games but like you said i do kind of like when a game just loudly announces like this is the arcade moment or this is yes, like this is this is you the know, whatever yeah yakuza very similar and that like there's a very high stakes melodrama happening that's not afraid to just remind you that you're leveling up and collecting stuff and like right. are playing a very video gamey video game yeah it's cool it's cool to see when it works yeah one of the things that i find really interesting about about this tomb raider series and i'm excited to check out the third one specifically uh for this reason is like it's coming you know the tomb raider 2013 is uh what five years just about six years actually i think after the first uncharted yeah so it's like really 
pulling a lot from Uncharted and in the moments that it is are like, yeah, this is a cool like Uncharted like, you know, like as if that's its own genre. It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> it's like doing OK. But I think Rise of the Tomb Raider specifically saying like we're going to spend a lot of time being kind of like an open world exploration game, give you side quests, give you other things to do, give you a bunch of collectibles to go find, like go explore this was a really smart differentiator for it and kind of funny to then look at Uncharted 4 and Lost Legacy, which like definitely was inspired by Tomb Raider it, as a result, which is kind of uh, it's a fun reversal, you know, and all of this obviously serving uh, big Indiana Jones energy, Indiana Jones serving big 30 serials energy. So it just like goes, you know, on and on and on. It's all full circle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, also going back to like original Tomb Raider influencing Uncharted. You know? <laughs> right. So yes, like yes, it yes. all it all goes back to that. Yeah, but uh, I, I have appreciated the moments in which this game is like wholly unique and is its own thing, um, which I think is like yeah. kind of the nicest thing I can say about it, you know, is like for all of the things that it's definitely pulling inspiration from, there are moments where I'm like, this is very specific to Rise of the Tomb Raider. And that is very exciting to me and gets me really stoked to play Shadow eventually, especially knowing like that is the end of the trilogy. They they specifically said it was going to be a trilogy and like this is the end of this Lara Croft story. She's going to end up where we... We know her from like the original PS1 era and like that's that's a really cool idea um, of this like trilogy character study to build this character up to that point. And I really hope, you know, for all of the things you can say about Embracer Group uh, buying all of these companies and like literally doing their namesake, I am hopeful that they will continue this franchise now that they own. I guess they own it now, if I were to guess. I don't think Square Enix still owns Tomb Raider. I think that might have been like a Crystal Dynamics thing specifically. Uh, So if that's the case, I I, I really hope they continue this. I've been really blown away by these games. I think I think you're going to really like the second one. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to play. it. I mean, you definitely sold me on it. I think also like. Like, I think it's worth pointing out, like you did, that this is almost as far away from Uncharted 1 as Uncharted 2 is. Uncharted 2 is, I think, 2010. So this is only a few years after that. And it, it does seem to, like, mark a split in direction where, like, it mm-hmm. sounds like both games are kind of focused on different things. It sounds like just from your description that Tomb Raider probably has way better combat than Uncharted does. It's uh, really good. It's really yeah. good. And and I, there's just so much available to you. You know, it, it kind of does this really nice blending of being kind of like shooter adjacent kind of last of us e kind of uncharted e but also give you a lot of improvisation so actually pulling a lot more from last of us in that way where like if you find a bottle on the ground uh you can throw it to distract somebody but also if you're at a certain point in the game and lara has like learned how to do something which i really appreciate a lot of the like upgrades and your new abilities that you pick up will be inspired by things that you find around the world so it's like there are narrative reasons for lara to think of new things to do you know it's not just like you know you open up a box and it's like oh shit i learned how to craft explosive arrows but like there's like a reason that she learned how to craft explosive arrows etc but like when you're in those stealth sequences you have moments where it's like if i find a bottle on the ground you can turn it into a molotov cocktail or you can just use it to distract an enemy you know do you want to go loud or do you want to go quiet etc etc it gives you a lot of choice which is a thing we've been talking about a lot recently in regards to roguelikes but i think in in stealth sequences and in like survival horror crafting games like this it's it's really important to have a lot of choice um how you want to how do you want to experience um a combat sequence i think i think is really helpful i have had i will mention one or two bugs in combat sequences that were supposed to be stealth sequences where for some reason the game just immediately dropped the stealth facade immediately like i think i think it was a bug i don't think it was intentional it's happened to me twice where like i've i've looked up online like people going through these sequences stealthily but i was given no option where like lara tripped and fell into a 
into a combat zone and like somebody saw me immediately just because I guess they were in the right place at the right time to see me as soon as I entered the zone and then immediately turned into combat. And I didn't mind is the thing, like because the the combat is so strong. The bow is so fun to use and is so interesting alongside all the other weapons you end up picking up and all of these kind of environmental aspects that you can weave into that stuff as I was talking about. It ends up just being fun regardless of what you're doing. So I don't know. I, I, I really like it. I really, really like it. I find the best stealth, and this is maybe, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. Maybe it's a very cold take, but I find the best stealth games are just as fun when you get caught. Like, it's not just over yeah. when the stealth is dropped. Like, I think, honestly, Horizon Zero Dawn does that really well, and also Forbidden West, where, like, if you're tracking one of the one of the robotic creatures and, like, you know, trying to stay hidden, but then you're caught, like, it is still thrilling to fight with, like, totally. your weapons in real time. Um, and honestly, The Last of Us does this really well, too, especially the second one. Yeah, I agree. Which I I remember one of our like weird critiques of Last of Us Part 2 is like the combat was so good. It actually got in the way of what the story was trying to say, <laughs> where like, you know, it's obviously about like the horrors of revenge and all this stuff. And it's like, I'm having a great time fighting everyone. So like, whoops. Uh, but I, I think about not to, no spoilers, but that last area in Last of Us Part 2 where there's like so many moving parts and so many very clearly broadcasted tools. Okay, like, mm-hmm. you know, how am I, do I want to, like, just show up guns blazing? Do I want to, like, lure enemies to certain areas and, and stealth take them down? Do I want to, like, let loose some infected to, like, you know, 28 days later, this area? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think you're right that having those options is really thrilling. Because then it also gives you, like, if you lose... When you start again, it's not just I have to do that again, but it's like maybe my approach wasn't right. Maybe I can try mm-hmm. something else. It right. makes it makes losing more interesting. Yeah, um, that was actually it kind of uh, my, one of my bigger issues with uh, a lot of the arcane games I've played. As much as I like appreciate a lot of what the Dishonored games are doing, I always found that if I fucked up the stealth sequences in those games, I was like, I need to reload a save. Like I ended up save spamming a lot in those games because I felt yeah. like losing the stealth sequences were a little bit fucked up. So honestly, I think one of the biggest strengths of Deathloop was that the combat was so fun in that game. It kind of it kind of felt like it it did the thing that I wanted Dishonored to do until the end, which uh, if you go on our youtube you can see me trying to beat death loop and uh what should have been like a one hour stream ended up being like four hours because <laughs> uh, i kept fucking up the cell sequences but anyway rise of tomb raider really good um i don't know if I'm they're all still it. on sale um but it seems like they're games that go on sale very frequently so if you haven't picked them up yet um at the time of this recording i think shadow of the tomb raider is free on the epic game store also so you could pick that up as well but i just got the bundle and i'm happy i did uh, and I'm excited to play the third one. I kind of hope there's a Lara Croft Go 2 as well, but that will likely never happen. But, you know, one can dream. It's a great yeah. puzzle game. Love to dream. If you heard all this, you're like, that sounds cool, but I wish it was more like Tetris. Uh, I've got a game for you. Uh, Lara Croft <laughs> Go. We talked about it last week. It's honestly great. But yeah, I'm really excited to play Rise. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. I report back when you do. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it. I'm also like curious if we'll ever, I know we've said this before, but like this sort of lingering possibility of an uncharted bonus is exciting. You said something in the discord about this that I think is, is worth highlighting, uh, which is, I think every time we talk about it, we realize that we just like four in lost legacy. Yeah. <laughs> they all have their moments, but four, yeah. four was the first one I played and it was really hard to go backwards. Cause I think, like you said, four is a character study in a way that the others aren't quite as, 
interested in being. So Nathan Drake comes off more like a like Van Wilder esque like early two thousands <laughs> protagonist. Whereas in yeah, four, it's a little bit more like Godfather ish, where like he has to question what life he wants and totally why. Yeah. And I think the relationship with his brother and like the flashbacks with his brother really it, it's a great story. I, I think four is an incredible game. It was interesting, and I said this in the Discord, but like when I first got a PS four, it came with Uncharted four. It was like a bundle. Mm-hmm. And it also came like it was a deal where you get a free game as well because it was 2016 and the PS4 had been out for three years. So I also got The Last of Us Remastered. And I remember I like held off on The Last of Us for a bit because I'm like, this has been so hyped for me. I've had people I don't know well offer to lend me their PS3 just to play The Last of Us. (laughs) And I know it's very heavy, so I'm like, let me wait on that. But I played Uncharted 4, and that game, like, no one told me anything about. Like, I knew the series existed, but I kind of had no interest in it, and I was yeah. so impressed. It's such a cool game. And I think it's, like, it's as good of a story in terms of its execution and, like, how it's told as The Last of Us, I would say. Mm. Which is maybe a hot take, but I think, like, I found it to be, in some ways, more impressive to, like, have such a gripping story in Uncharted 4 because the stakes aren't quite as high. You know, not that, like, Last of Us is an incredible story story but i just think that like the framing device of it of this like high stakes kind of zombie apocalypse like pulls you in a little more easily than like yeah why do i care about this like midlife crisis indiana jones wannabe and like you know and it's it's somehow like the way they tell that story through a game and like there's so many moments of that of that game that i really love so yeah maybe one day we'll talk about it um if you're interested please let us know that's you know we always want to hear feedback on like what bonuses people would like to hear but all that to say i'm really excited to check out tomb raider so yeah, I think I think you're gonna like it a lot. Um, I've gone back to try and play the the first three Uncharted games in the past to see like, oh, would would I would I feel the pull to do a bonus? And it really is just like I'm just working my way up to wanting to replay four and Lost Legacy again. But yeah, one one is really rough. Two is like when the series became what it is now. Yeah, it's a cool moment of discovery. I haven't played three, so I can't speak to three. What I will say about Tomb Raider versus Uncharted, not that you need to keep comparing the two, but I I do think you and I were talking a little bit off the show about this, but one of the things that really struck me about Tomb Raider 2013 is that it really wants to be like gritty and realistic. Like that's kind of what it's trying to do. It's trying to be this like that's that's what they think is the differentiator, at least is, is my read on it from Uncharted is like, you know, Uncharted is like fun and zany and goofy and kind of cartoony. And it's just it just wants to be like a big summer action blockbuster. And this game wants to be like a little bit more down to earth and, you know, both like visually, but also narratively like much heavier. And because of that, Anytime anything bad happens to Lara, it's like, oh, my God, why would she keep going? Whereas when something bad happens to Nathan Drake in any of the Uncharted games, he just goes like, whoopsie. And then just like, (laughs) you know, pulls out a gun and like kills 50 guys and then jumps over a bridge or something. Uh, Anytime anything bad happens to Lara, it's like you just feel bad for her. You just you just are like this sucks. I, I'm so sorry that you have to go through this. And I feel like they strike a much better balance in the second one. Uh, and I imagine in the third one as well, but they're much more willing to like have fun in the second one, which I think is what's really pulling me through it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I have a physical copy of it going back to physical media. Wow. So one day I'll, I'll eject God of War and put in Rise of Tomb Raider. <laughs> the hidden theme of the episode. Yeah. Do you want to take a break and come back and talk about more stuff? I'd love to. Cool. Let's do it. See you later. Bye-bye. Brendan, it's that time of year. You guessed it. It is the first Splatfest of Splatoon 3, Uh, which is not out yet. Comes out on the 9th. But you can download a free demo where you make your character. 
explore the city and you can choose your team for the mm. first Splatfest. How are you? How are you feeling about it so far? I ha- I have done those three things, uh, and I have not. We are recording this on the first day of the Splatfest. Neither of us have actually played Splatoon three, but I I mean, look, here's the thing about Splatoon: they're kind of the same game from one to the next one. <laughs> they they have a new single yeah. player mode. They have a new hub. They have some new weapons and things like that. But you know, it's, it's largely the same. I think I think you and I know how Splatoon three is going to play, and it's going to be really fun and really good. But I think you and I are also more interested in like what's this new city all about tell me about all the new weird people who live there uh, <laughs> etc etc yeah um it also i watched the nintendo treehouse where they played some of the game they had an event recently that was splatoon 3 and harvestella uh, but i can only tune in for a little bit so i only saw the oh man the splatoon 3 part i also missed the harvestella thing i really want to know how that was the single player definitely looks heavily influenced by the Octo expansion. So cool. worth knowing, like I didn't play Splatoon 1, but in Splatoon 2, the single player was like kind of a tutorial. Like it was fun. It definitely like showcased how you could use the mechanics, like even outside. For those who don't know, Splatoon is essentially a team based shooter and you play as a like squid person who shoots or, or there are a variety of weapons at this point. But you have a weapon that dispels ink your team has one color the opposing team has another and usually like a standard mattress platoon is whoever can ink more of the turf wins so it's kind of like and also when you when you ink an area you can swim in that ink so it's one of those like clear examples of nintendo designing around a single mechanic or two and like honestly just the act of like spraying stuff with with ink and swimming in it is so fun and the way they can apply that to like different arenas and like this could have been a platformer but the fact that it became like a cooperative shooter is so funny (laughs) and it really is like the only one of its genre for nintendo this is like nintendo's overwatch or call of duty basically yeah but uh i've always loved this game because it kind of has the spirit of jet set radio which is like one of my favorite like aesthetics and vibes in a game and it just is so strange and so unique even amongst like like, like Nintendo's IP, like their first party stuff is all very unique to itself. But this in some ways feels the most out of place, I would say. <laughs> like it feels like this was like a Dreamcast game that just somehow ended up as a modern Nintendo game. Absolutely. Yeah. But I just I love I love Splatoon. I, I got on Splatoon 2 a little bit late. So like I played it a lot, but I eventually like kind of moved on. So I've been really excited for three because I feel like it's like it's always fun with this type of multiplayer game to join when like everyone is playing it. Totally. And what they've done in the past is like they will do these things called Splatfests where these sort of like VH1-esque hosts will introduce a Splatfest and it's usually like an opposing thing. So like in Splatoon 2, I think one of the earliest Splatfests that I played was retro versus uh, modern. So you would choose one side and you would be on that team and whatever team did better, that would win. So the first Splatfest of Splatoon 3 and now there are three teams hence Splatoon 3. There are three teams now. It's rock, paper, or scissors. And in this sort of like show where the hosts are talking, each of the hosts chooses a side and says like, oh, paper is the best. No, rock is... It's very, very silly. So all you can really do now is choose a team and wait, which is kind of agonizing, but has also, I think, built up the tension between the three teams. (laughs) And what's cool is like kind of akin to like Persona or... The world ends with you. There's sort of like a reimagined version of like a Shibuya-esque 
like city center. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this city center feels a little different. It feels like a little grungier. Like it doesn't yeah. have the same like, um, which I kind of like. I like that it's like it's a warmer palette. It's like an orange kind of vibe. But anyway, I'm bearing the lead. What team did I choose? <laughs> I heard the options and I felt that Team Paper had the weakest case and felt the the inherent need to join oh, Team Paper. You joined out of pity. Uh, Paper pity. pity. <laughs> Don't I, I won't accept this team's scissor propaganda. I'm not going <laughs> to let you make me doubt myself. It wasn't pity. It was just this like... This is not Paper Pity propaganda. Yeah. It was a similar draw to, dare I say, the Golden Deer, where it's like, this mm. feels like the outlier. It feels like the weird one. I see. Yes. I want to be unique. I'm going Team Paper. And what I've learned is that Team Paper is approximately me and another person because I've, <laughs> I've been exploring the city center and another thing you can do in Splatoon that I don't know how I've never really known how to do this but you can kind of put up like away messages that you draw essentially so like there will be like static characters of like other people's characters that will like if you go near them there will be a speech bubble with the drawing and they're all like like professionally done i don't know like like it's just incredible the artistic talent on display it's worth mentioning so the first one came out on the wii u was the first was the first platoon and specifically the wii u had this incredible incredible online feature that was like a nintendo run game facts message board for every (laughs) video game that you could play on the wii you where like you could go in and they had this thing called the Meverse where you could like write messages and like right. give people hints and like record video and screenshots and like help people out with stuff but it also included kind of like a picto chat ability to like draw a little rectangle of whatever you wanted and then upload that to Meverse. so what they did with splatoon one was if you drew something and then uploaded to Meverse, your character if they showed up in somebody else's game would be highlighting whatever it was that you drew which is always really fun in splatfest because i feel like people come in with just like the absolute wild this shit to just kind of like rep whatever team they picked um, yeah and they ended up even though Meverse is not a thing on the switch they ended up incorporating that specific element of it into splatoon 2 which is you know completely wild and i'm glad to see it back in splatoon 3 as well it's really fun yeah so all that to say i'm seeing all of this incredible art for team scissors you know there's this like person yeah. doing the scissors sign winking at the camera there's like team rock won't stop like you know a, a photo of drawing of the rock you know as the mascot of team rock all this incredible stuff and i'm looking i'm looking i played the game for maybe 20 minutes and i even reloaded just to see if i could find a single (laughs) emblem for team paper in the unlit back alley i found one squid kid whose drawing was a jacked among us character just saying i enjoy paper so that's that's what team paper has yeah. is like a shit post in the back alley and that's it it's me and that guy so if if by some miracle team paper wins i'm taking full credit because it's just <laughs> me i even i even posted the discord assuming someone would have my back and i immediately got insulted by someone on team scissors and then just radio silence so it really yeah truly is just me and uh we'll see how it goes we'll see what the results say we'll know by the time this episode comes out who won the splatfest yeah history will prove me right uh either as a martyr (laughs) or as a victor um so i'm very excited to see how that goes Um, what's your what's your weapon of choice in splatoon i like the giant paint roller it's essentially like the equivalent of guts's sword in splatoon but it's just a giant (laughs) paint roller that like 
it's a great melee weapon, but you have very limited range, but you also can like really quickly ink a lot of turf. So one of the most haunting images in Splatoon is of dying and then seeing the enemy team just like casually roll paint over where you died. Mm -hmm. I like being able to discover a lot of ground very quickly. I don't like the weapons that are that are too limiting. I, I also like the two pistols. Um, the twin pistols are, that's, are great as that's well. That's my answer. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, That's that's usually my go-to because I I really like the speed of of them. I I really like being able to like you know just shoot kind of like a straight really thin line and then use that to kind of sneak behind somebody and wipe them out like immediately because if you just like empty a clip into them that's it. I I just find the speed of them to be really fun. They also added katanas in this game, but they're called splatanas, which I'm like so <laughs> excited to get my hands on. Um, unfortunately, I'm I'm gonna miss the actual like playing of of the test fire. Um, so. I guess report back when when you've played it yeah. and, and let me know what you think. Um, I imagine, as we said, it probably plays like Splatoon 2, but, you know, maybe a little bit more refined. But, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff in Splatoon that's really fun. Like the single player is going to be really fun. I'm excited for Salmon Run to come back. It seems like the yeah. stuff they've added to Salmon Run is really fun. The Splatfest specifically also, which is kind of a bummer that I'm missing it, adds the ability to play three teams at once instead of just like team versus team. It's now like team versus team versus team. And they're like specific arenas built for like, three team splatoon matches which is really cool i'm i'm i don't know i'm i'm stoked about this i i, I really I'm, I'm glad the splatoon 3 is coming out and i'm glad that you get to play it like when it comes out yeah exactly and and one other thing i, I forgot to mention so i was talking a little bit about the single player and how the single player in two is like kind of a tutorial with some fun moments in octo expansion which was the big dlc for splatoon 2 it was like really tightly designed it almost felt like the equivalent of like splatoon like shrines from breath of the wild where it was mm. like every level was kind of built around one specific idea it was yeah. really hard maybe too hard but i really enjoyed it and it, there's this whole lore of like the octo kids and they're like i think they're like deep underground it's like the deep sea essentially yeah and there are like floating game cubes in the sky i'm like this is so strange i love this <laughs> but uh that that whole plot was like you had to get all these specific pieces and then it was revealed you were building a blender which has horrific implications. Totally. So it was a really, really cool. I highly recommend if you if you are a big Splatoon fan, but you didn't get the Octo expansion, check it out. It's a really interesting experiment. I think the Octo expansion is part of the new Nintendo Online like Plus expansion. Oh, pass. great. I think I think if you yeah. get the expansion pass, you get obviously like Happy Home Designer uh, stuff or sorry, Happy Home Paradise for New Horizons. And then you also get the N64 stuff and Octo expansion. So and it's it's similar in structure. The single player from what I've seen of Splatoon 3 is a similar thing where like you enter an area, you choose one of three weapons. There's like a recommended weapon and then the other two are like a little bit more challenging, but you'll get more points for using them. Mm. So it's like it, it's more kind of divided in level that way. Um, there's also like a wide boss at the very end of octo expansion so i don't know if like three is gonna go into that territory i'm excited to see i don't think they've invested at least based on what i've seen and and know currently i was expecting it to be a little bit more uh like single player focus because that just seemed like the big thing left unexplored in splatoon one and two mm -hmm. so it definitely seems like they took a lesson from octo expansion but i i imagine the focus is still the multiplayer, which makes total sense. Yeah. Because like Animal Crossing, there's sort of an aspect of like, 
checking in and you know seeing like what's new in this world getting like the news announcements from the tv host and seeing what's available in the store but not being charged real money like most games uh which was nice to see i even started with some equipment like i i was making my character and i already have like a few items which is cool so like you don't you don't just start with nothing yeah which is nice to see uh but it is a little bit of a bummer because like at least it will be open now but like you can go into the stores but they're all like oh you haven't played the game yet you can't shop here i'm like yeah why why is this an option even right Also, in terms of Splatoon weapons, shout out to anyone who mains the bucket. I feel like that's definitely like the wretch of Splatoon, and I have a lot the of respect. Bucket's pretty hardcore for anyone yeah. who can who can do well with the bucket. I will also say it, that Splatoon is the only game I think that Nintendo has ever released where they actually use their own app in a really smart way. Yeah. Splatoon 2 at least uses the Nintendo online app. It's like totally worth getting just for this feature where you can check in and see the shop or like the shop rotation because it's global. So like everyone in the world is seeing the same shop at the same time and it rotates at the same time for everybody. And if you're not playing the game, you can actually open up the app and like buy stuff through the app instead, which is fucking brilliant. And I'm like amazed is not in every game. Like I I remember playing Splatoon 2 and then going and like thinking like, why doesn't Destiny have this? Like Destiny has the same... (laughs) like destiny is all about fomo and stuff but like what if you just like you have to recognize at a certain point that sometimes people can't turn on the video game like maybe it would be helpful if you have a whole app that you've already built to like include some of the shop stuff maybe destiny does have this now i haven't played it in years but i just i love that about splatoon uh and i'm I'm really excited about that it it is weird it's like the one series that really utilizes like the internet at all in nintendo's library and like it kind of makes you frustrated that they don't do that with any other like animal crossing i feel like could use a lot of the stuff they're doing for Splatoon. that's what i was gonna say yeah they they had so much stuff uh animal crossing related in the nintendo online app and like i get i get it because it's not a global shop right like everybody's nook right. shop is different and has different stuff but there were there definitely could have been some way to allow you to like access your money and like do some kind of shopping offline or sorry online on the go um that, that would have been really fun i think there's a reason so many apps and services prospered that were third party relating to animal crossing because there was like a need for that stuff you know totally yeah. like i have the like uh i haven't used it in a while because i haven't poor Berdo is is left alone but i had the travel guide app which is great yeah and like it also helps to like see exactly like for example i have every fossil but i have i need 20 more fish mm. so it's cool to see that you know yeah, it is cool to see that. I agree. Yeah, there there is like a whole cottage industry of people who have like filled in the gaps that Nintendo like definitely could have just made themselves. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, for better or for worse, sometimes it's fun to have that stuff be community owned. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to see that. Like, I'm glad people are able to do that stuff and that it's like able to exist. Yeah. Anyway, Splatfest, I, I will I will share the results. I'm a little bit nervous now, but uh, I just wanted to share <laughs> the lead up to Splatoon 3. I imagine, will that be? No, it's... It will be out on the 9th, so it's still a couple weeks away. Yep, sure is. I imagine we'll bring it up when it comes out. Ah, we'll see. I'm Um, fine. I just wanted to visit closed stores and get a taste of that, and I'm good now. Totally. Yeah. Well, speaking of Team Paper, can I let me, let me fill you in on uh, a little update? Uh, so, as of the time of this recording, I think the Paper Mario bonus is out. Oh wow! Nice and transition. That was great. Thank you so much. And if you've heard that episode, you heard me also say maybe on the show. Maybe I didn't say this on the show, but I think I did say on on that episode that I was in the middle of downloading Mario and Luigi Paper Jam, which feels like 
it's a confluence of so many things, but it's specifically a confluence of the Paper Mario franchise, which we're obviously talking about and exploring currently and have been for a long time, but also the Mario and Luigi franchise, which weirdly picked up the baton of Paper Mario's combat mechanics as Paper Mario became less and less what it was known for. You know, Paper Mario starts as this thing that is this turn-based RPG focused on like timing in battle, focused on you know, exploring this like beautiful, weird version of the Mushroom Kingdom with like its own kind of lore and legacy and things like that. Eventually, those games became less and less about that and became more about like different kinds of mechanics and just kind of like exploring how kind of irreverent they can get with the like paper aesthetic, which leads to Origami King, which I think is like this kind of halfway point, like weird thing. We have a whole episode about it. You can check it out. But in the meantime, the Mario and Luigi franchise comes up. We've talked about it a lot, you know, through the Game Boy Advance bonus and the DS bonus have played a bunch of them at this point and really just picked up where Paper Mario left off has that kind of like timed aspect to the combat mechanics um, has this kind of like overworld exploration weirdness about it is just like very funny picks up the like comedic aspect of Paper Mario as well so weirdly enough on the 3DS they ended up making a game that almost feels like a mea culpa in a way that is Mario and Luigi plus the world of Paper Mario and they kind of like blend together and I was really curious picking this game up just how it was gonna incorporate Paper Mario because like you know we're in a we're in a very interesting world right now entertainment wise where uh, for some reason so much media is so interested in the multiverse obviously there's the marvel of it all but like everything everywhere all at once a couple other things that are currently happening that I don't want to spoil out in out in the media landscape but like the multiverse is like really present in a lot of things that are happening right now and i was like is that how they're gonna do this are they gonna say there's like you know multiple mario universes how do you incorporate (laughs) the paper mario universe into the mario luigi universe etc etc the answer steven and the answer to your listener and and this is really the only reason i'm bringing this game up on the show but the answer is that uh tucked away in the attic of peach's castle is a book shoved into a dusty bookcase that Luigi sneezes so hard he knocks over. (laughs) And when it opens up, it leaks out the Paper Mario universe. And the implication is that the entirety of the Paper Mario universe is contained in this one book that Peach has just been keeping in her fucking attic that's so dusty and shitty. Oh my god. (laughs) Luigi and Toad are up in the attic specifically because they're like, there's a weird draft coming from here and we need to figure out where the draft is coming from. And he sneezes from the dust and knocks over the book and, and releases the Paper Mario universe into ours, which of course also releases all of the Paper Goombas and the Paper Koopas and uh, Paper Bowser Jr. and Paper Bowser. So all of the enemies team up. You know, obvi- the two Bowsers are fighting for superiority between the two of them. They're both very jealous of the other one for being a Bowser, which is really fun. But, you know, all of the like Paper Goombas and regular Goombas team up. All of the Paper Koopas and regular Koopas team up. And it just becomes this like big battle between all of these Paper and regular enemies versus Mario and Luigi and Paper Mario. Uh, so if you've played a paper, if you played a Mario and Luigi game, you know that the A button is for Mario and the B button is for Luigi. Well, guess what, dear listener, the Y button is for Paper Mario. So wow. although it was already complex at times to master the A and B of it all when it comes to Mario and Luigi, you now have to master the A, B, and Y of it all, incorporating Paper Mario into your party as well. This game, I'm going to just say uh, up front, is fine. It's like 
really passable. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say it's like that great outside of that extremely incredible reveal of how Paper Mario gets in the world in the first place. The reason that I would recommend it to people is that it's not really trying to be anything greater than the sum of its parts. It is just trying to be like competent and honestly is that. Like it is so streamlined. It is so simple. The plot literally is there's two Bowsers and we got to beat them. The world is like kind of interesting. It's the Mushroom Kingdom and they've incorporated some paper stuff in there. So this is some like paper craft. But where it really gets interesting is the battle system. Like the battle system is, I think, maybe the best it's ever been, honestly, in maybe Mario and Luigi or the Paper Mario franchise that I've played so far, because it incorporates everything that's cool about both of those franchises and including this like this Y button where Paper Mario doesn't actually have health. He just has like screen printed copies of himself. <laughs> That you need to like replenish every once in a while. So he can take six hits total is the whole thing with Paper Mario. But also the more Paper Marios you have on your team, the more he can attack all at once, which is really great. So he's like the powerhouse of your team, believe it or not. (laughs) So anytime you like jump on an enemy with Paper Mario, you can, if you time it well, hit them like six times in a row. And every time you hit them, it does more and more damage. So anytime it's Paper Mario's turn, it's just like, who do you want to absolutely fucking destroy? Uh, which is honestly a really fun way of using Paper Mario in in that game uh, where he's just like so wildly powerful. Yeah. But the other weird, wild aspect of this game that I'm absolutely in love with is Toadette is like this like grand inventor in this game and creates a giant papercraft Mario that's being carried by like a hundred paper toads for some reason. <laughs> And you have to fight against giant papercraft Goombas. And it reminds me again, second time I'm bringing it up on this episode, of Bowser's Fury, where it's like this big kaiju fight between a giant Mario in a cat suit and a giant Bowser. You're essentially a giant paper Mario fighting giant paper Goombas. Uh, And it has it's like fully in 3D, has all of these extra (laughs) mechanics that they've layered on where it's like if you attack somebody from the back, they'll get knocked over. And then you can launch yourself off of your platform and, and headbutt them in the back and they blow up or just wild shit they've just incorporated so much weird stuff into this game but then the actual like baseline story of it is like oh man there's two bowsers Uh, it's pretty tough (laughs) pretty tough to fight two bowsers huh all right everyone back in the book it's over back in the book honestly that's kind of what it feels like yeah Uh, i imagine that's the end of the game is just like well all right i guess i'll get back in the book that's fine i can't think of a better like metaphor to how nintendo sees both series than like a dusty (laughs) book in the corner that's only discovered because someone sneezed too much. Yeah. Uh, that's very sad. It sounds fun. I mean, I I think like not to say too much about the Paper Mario bonus, but I think one of the big takeaways is that we're both really excited to play Thousand Year Door, yeah. which is like the most heralded one of the bunch, I would say. So I imagine we'll talk about that at some point, but... It is interesting to see the history of this series and kind of like where it went wrong, where it was like perceived to go wrong. Because I do think that there are some entries that like, you know, I, I think there's like two aspects to the series that are that are kind of interesting to observe is like one is that like the minute they took away the RPG stuff, the series has felt a little lost. Like it doesn't really yeah. know what it wants to be and doesn't have like a clear direction to move in. But the second is that there, you know, I think the initial move away from being an RPG was met with a lot of hostility. And it's like, I think it's not that that's inherently bad. I think that actually is why Super Paper Mario seems to have like a much warmer reception these days because they had a much clearer idea of what to do in place of the RPG mechanics from what I know. The sort of like 2D, 3D, Fez access stuff. 
So like it's a series where they've really nailed the charm of like the character and the writing, but the main like game design is always like a roll of the dice. Right. After they decided for some reason to stop being an RPG, which like is kind of strange to to see because like it was working so well. Yeah. <laughs> like the games that are good. But even the ones that like do try like I, I played a bunch of um Sticker Star also on the 3DS, just like yeah. trying to give that a shot. And and that game like incorporates the same combat that you know and love from Paper Mario, except all of your moves are limited and restrained by what items you have on you. So like anytime you want to jump or use your hammer or anything, you need to have the the item like available to do that so there's like a world in which you run out of the ability to jump in that game um unless you like go grinding or like go searching around to try and find more jump items it honestly reminds me a lot of bloodborne where like you could run out of blood vials and you need to go back to that first area and like wipe out all the dudes in that one like straight away um on that one street to like go get all the blood vials it's like you got to do that but to jump in paper mario Star. (laughs) and then origami king as we talked about a lot in in our episode about that but i mean that that game is just like riddled with weird choices battle wise where it's like the game incentivizes you to not do combat in a lot of ways it's it's bizarre it's a bizarre franchise and it's kind of a bummer that like this was a little bit the swan song of mario and luigi also like not only was this like an okay paper mario game but like it's also an okay mario and luigi game and then the next two that came out after that were just remakes of superstar saga and bowser's inside story without the like great pixel art aesthetic of those original games so you kind of lose a little bit of that charm to them um, and then they just didn't make any more. Kind of a bummer. We talked about this a bit on the bonus and going back to Splatoon where it's like Splatoon is a series where like all we kind of want is like more of the same in some ways. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's like we don't really need too much new stuff uh, to enjoy a new Splatoon. And it's kind of ironic because I think a game that Paper Mario is really clearly inspired by and is sort of emulating in some ways is Dragon Quest, which is a series that is founded on familiarity. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it is always going to be a shade of of a certain type of experience, uh, whether or not it's like focused on different things or whatever. Like it's always going to be kind of what you expect. Nintendo's philosophy on sequels and that like it needs to be like a fundamental new design to exist, I think has actually gotten in the way of this series continuing because like by them trying to reinvent what the series is every time, they kind of lost what was working. Yeah. And I think Paper Mario like honestly could have been like a Dragon Quest where like every few years a new one comes out and it's just a new story mm-hmm. and maybe some new tweaks here and there i'm like i'm not like that that usually is not what i want to see out of a sequel i usually like the big swings but i think it is kind of sad when you just sort of like abandon a series because i think the thing about paper mario too is like it was just figuring it out like it had just really yeah struck gold when it was canceled and i think there's so much more to do there still which is evidenced by so many people being inspired by these games so it's frustrating like i'm not saying that like I would know exactly what to do with this or that we need more of the same. But I think the other thing too is like, okay, I respect the restraint of not just making the same game over and over again, but then at least have it be available. Don't just get rid of it. You know, it's like you can't have that philosophy and be actively against game preservation because then you're just essentially like scorching whatever came before. Right. In the case of Paper Mario, it is on the Switch. But again, that's a it's a whole other conversation yeah. of like, is this gonna be like a long-term supported thing? Is this just for the switch like there's so many question marks so there's a lot of weird nintendo question marks with this series you know yeah yeah unfortunately like there really is no way to play thousand year door right now unless you have a gamecube and a copy of it which is a little bit of a bummer or a wii in my case or a wii (laughs) 
anyway, yeah. Well, just one last note: Mario and Luigi Paper Jam. I would recommend it. It is like a, a pretty good, fun game. I've played a lot more of it this week than I thought I was going to. Um, I really, really, really like the combat, and I find myself trying to get into as many combat scenarios as I possibly can, just because I think it's really fun. There is another aspect of the game that I just remembered that is like so funny. It, especially, I've gone back and read a lot of reviews, and a lot of reviews call this out specifically, and I think like for good reason. But um, they make you go find paper toads all over the place in like it's a very it's a very paper mario thing that's like a classic kind of almost staple of those games is like the paper toads will like hide all over the world and you got to go find them but in this game they like force you to do it over and over and over and over and over again like way more than in any of the other games that i've played honestly i just find it kind of annoying uh in a in a way that like kind of bums me out but you know beyond that i i find that the game is like pretty competent at everything that it's doing and it's like definitely worth playing if you haven't checked it out i think i think you'll find that like it's a good like turn your brain off i just want to experience like a fun turn-based rpg kind of experience yeah it's good. Oh, and also they incorporate a lot more paper environment stuff than even like Thousand Year Door does because I've been playing Thousand Year Door a little bit and they're like completely uninterested in the fact that that game is made of paper. It just like things <laughs> things are 2D is like as far as they get. But they're even the first game I found had more stuff about Mario being made of paper. But when you know where the franchise gets to with with things like Origami King and like Super Paper Mario that are like really engaged with that, I do find that adds a little bit of a charm to the game for me uh and thousand year door although i'm enjoying like pretty much everything about it i am missing a little bit of that like at least acknowledge that he's made a paper for me just once (laughs) that has never really been of interest to me to be honest like i Mm. i kind of just liked it being an rpg um like i I like some moments where it's like you know uh, when in the first game when when mario falls down he kind of like glides like a falling leaf like that's that's cute but like i i don't know i just i just always assumed it was sort of like the style i didn't really need it to be like explored although it is it is fun to see i mean i think that again that goes back to like the direction of the series like the the world of origami king does look really beautiful it's stunning and like you know patching it together with like actual like material i think all the villains being like creative objects you know like crayons and scissors and stuff i think is like really that i i found that to be really fun and really smart yeah yeah i guess i just like for me i i definitely am someone who like loved the series because of what it was like its style of rpg you know Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of like satirical take on on mario and on just like kind of rpgs yeah it was like a nice mix of like almost sort of a parody but also a really good example of an rpg but uh yeah more more on that when the bonus comes out we, we talk a lot about all this stuff on that yeah. episode cool cool let's take another break steven let's do it i can't believe i am ambivalent to the paper side of paper mario and i'm on team paper what a cruel fate i've signed up for <laughs> yeah hey this is this is your own thing you got to figure out <laughs> yeah. rise of paper steven uh will eventually figure out how oh, to interrogate man your your character a little bit if i had to, no i want to stick i'm going to stick with it i'm not going to retcon my choice in this spot fest because then if i do and team paper ends up winning i'm going to feel like even larger of a of a paper clown i will say i mean the the big like algorithmic mathematic choice to always make if you're given a choice between two doors and then they give you an option to switch your choice you should switch your choice i don't know if that's the case with three doors but i know that's the case with two <laughs> How much doubt do you want to give me? This is brutal. (laughs) 
you could change your mind, although I don't think it's a good idea to change your mind, but you could. I'm having a great time. I'm 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 leaning back. I'm here all day. I mean I I could <laughs> I could have you question this for the next couple hours and, and no skin off my back. My plans for the day are to go to the beach and read a book. So in the argument of the three TV hosts of which is the best team to pick, I liked the argument for Rock the best. I will say that much. I will not say whether or not that means that I would switch to Team Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I was tempted for Team Rock. This is how it sounded. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I chose Team Paper. Is this kind of like when an AP Gov, I, I was assigned representing Dennis Kucinich in the like mock <laughs> debate? A little bit. Yeah, it might be a little bit like that. It might be Kucinich-esque oh. uh, in sort of its patheticness. Don't but, make um, me make Kucinich-esque the title of this episode. <laughs> I don't think you should. I don't want that to, to be like searchable. Anyway, let's let's take a break and and maybe go for like a short jog and come back that and talk great. about more games. Yeah, my my head hurts now. I'm thinking about Dennis. <laughs> Dennis the menace Kucinich. Am I right? Don't vote for him. I literally like just saw nothing. Like I like I, my eyes just stopped working for a second. All right. See you later. Goodbye. Bye bye. Bye, Dennis. <laughs> Steven, pray tell you have been oh. playing a, a video game recently. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been playing a video game. I'd call it that. I've been playing the great Ace Attorney Chronicles on Switch. Hell yeah. Also on PC, I believe. You can play it on PC. Oh, nice. You don't have a Switch, um, which is cool. I love Ace Attorney. Uh, this is a series that I think you and I have gotten into re- more recently. Uh, compared to other franchises we love. Um, yeah. I hadn't played them. I, I played the first one very briefly, like when we first started the show, but similar to God of War, just like clownish uh, <laughs> departure at a certain point. But then when we were planning for uh, like in the DS prep year, basically, I obviously was going to play them because like a lot of them are on the DS, including the original trilogy, which like I think most people point to as like the best Ace Attorney experience. And I loved it. I really, really loved my time with that series. It's, it's such a cool idea for a series. And it's, it's just got so many lovable characters and is like really gripping. It's like a fun, creative take on both point and click and visual novels in a way that like really feels like wholly unique, which I think is why it has such a devoted following. Mm. There really isn't a game like it. Like there are games that are inspired by it in some way, but like there's really nothing like Ace Attorney in some ways. Yeah. So I love the trilogy and we also played Ghost Trick, which was a game uh, that was led by the creator of Ace Attorney, Shu Takumi, I believe, and also loved Ghost Trick. So I just like, I love, I love this series. I feel like uh, Shu Takumi is such a great ear for dialogue and like, there's always like a lot of comedy and a lot of heart in these games where like it's really funny, like it's really goofy, but there's like an undercurrent of of like real drama and real emotion mm. that I think yeah. is like why it's so successful. Because I think especially in the original trilogy, like by the end of the third game, you're like so invested in all these characters. It's, it's a great payoff. Mm-hmm. So I've been curious about the other entries. There are a few on the 3DS that I picked up recently. Worth noting, I think it's Spirit. Spirit of Justice and Dual Destinies that are the 3DS Ace Attorney games, they are digital only. 
So you can only get them on the 3DS eStore? While it's still open, yeah. While it's still open. I have a, a hunch that like they will eventually be backed up because Capcom is generally good at backing up their games, yeah. but why why take the risk? They're, I think they were on sale last time I checked, and uh, I haven't played them, so I can't speak to how good they are in terms of like the overall series, but it seems like every entry like does something well. There's like either a good case or an introduction of a cool character. Like There's, mm-hmm. there's a reason for checking them all out. I did just pick up the Ace Attorney uh, Professor Layton crossover game, which I'm yeah. really excited to talk about when I eventually get to it. I have so much stuff I'm playing on 3DS right now that's like <laughs> pretty far down the backlog, but I, I'm excited to eventually check it out. Yeah, so from what I know, there's the original trilogy, which is Phoenix Wright, Justice for All, and uh, Trials and Tribulations. Then there's Apollo Justice, which is like a new lead. There's, they pass the baton to a new character. Unbelievable name. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard great things about Apollo Justice. I didn't get to play it uh, in time for the episode, but yeah. at this point, I will probably play them all. I almost wish that Apollo Creed's name in Rocky was Apollo Justice now in retrospect, yeah, actually. Right? But then we wouldn't have the incredible Creed movies, so... That's true. Yeah, Justice doesn't have the same ring to it. Well, wait a second. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) Yeah, there are two Miles Edgeworth spinoffs, the Investigation games. Only one got released in the U.S. So actually, that's like the one Ace Attorney game that we haven't received in the U.S., and from what I know, I, I don't know of the full process, but I know that like localizing these games has like kind of constantly been a big challenge mm-hmm. for Capcom because they take place in Japan in the original script, but for whatever reason, they take place in the U.S. in the U.S. one. Right. And increasingly, as the series goes on, there's like distinctly Japanese settings. They essentially had to change like some story elements mm. because of that. And localizing anything is always like a big task. So, right. know, and especially with a game that is so the game is dialogue. The game is the story. It's it's a pretty huge, huge thing to do for that game, especially, which leads us to the great Ace Attorney Chronicles, which I've played which is actually a compilation of two games that were previously only released in Japan, The Great Ace Attorney Adventures and The Great Ace Attorney Resolve, I believe. And they were both on the 3DS. Um, The first one came out in 2015, second one 2017. And this is also Shu Takumi coming back because he didn't work on the 3DS entries. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if that like marks a change in writing at all or if like fans feel divided on it. But like this is him coming back to the series post Ghost Trick. And I have played it. I'm three episodes into, I guess, what is technically adventures. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect video game. I I (laughs) am... I am in love with this game. Yeah. I, I knew I would like it because I liked the trilogy a lot, but right. it really does feel like it's the best execution of the idea. Like, I think they, they you know, because the game is essentially structured, very visual novel Esque, where it's a lot of dialogue, a lot of characters, the way that the DS games actually it was originally on the Game Boy Advance in Japan. But by the time it got to the US, it was the DS. But regardless, like those games largely play from a first person point of view as Phoenix, right? You'll see a character in front of you. And it's like a running gag that everyone has like four animations. (laughs) And like the game almost has its own visual vocabulary because like, you know, that's a very common thing where like in any game, like, you know, Fire Emblem, for example, when a character is talking, they'll have like the text box and like different, you know, 
faces show their mood. Mm-hmm. But in Phoenix Wright, it's like everyone almost has their own like dance. It's like, you know, you yeah. have there's a guy in Great Ace Attorney Chronicles who's a like very militaristic guy with who has a baby on his back yes. that he keeps trying to hide. And it is so funny. Like every character's animation cycle is essentially like the setup of a giant joke. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the cases of the courtroom side of the game, it's almost an indication of how well you're doing in terms of like, are you catching the the lies? Are you like putting the pressure on the testimony? Are you are you, you know, catching them uh, lying to the court and revealing the truth? Mm-hmm. So it's cool to see how well that translates to 3D. That's something I was actually kind of nervous about because it feels so like the DS games are so iconic in terms of how those animations look and how the courtroom story is structured. I think that's why there's so many memes about it because it's so easy to kind of follow the rhythm of it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, you know, Phoenix Wright, Miles Edgeworth, testimony. There's a really interesting loop there. And so to go back to what the series is for those who don't know you're largely like experiencing the story there will be segments where you're just researching and investigating so you'll go from place to place kind of like a point and click to interview people and and gather evidence before the court case and then once you're in court larger the game is listening to different witness testimonies and trying to use evidence to expose contradictions right so evidence um, that you've gathered through your investigations specifically exactly. so like when you go to a crime scene and you pick up a bunch of stuff that's stuff that you're going to use to figure out discrepancies and witness testimonies and things like that exactly and, and the great ace attorney chronicles is structured the same way i think the big difference though is that they've i would say have dramatically improved how investigating feels because that was something that you and i talked about and i think a pain point for the series is that the courtroom stuff is usually more fun than investigating yeah. Like it's it, it makes sense that they can't just have back to back courtroom stuff. You need some breath in between. And it is like it's always great dialogue. It's always great, like moment to moment storytelling when you're investigating, when you're learning more about who's involved and why that's that's like all good where it kind of stumbles a bit is like it falls into 90s point and click logic sometimes where like you need to have said the right thing at the right time. And it can get it's really easy to like stall your progress in an investigation because you just forgot to look at a certain place or do Mm -hmm. a certain thing yeah and you know it's the kind of thing where it's okay i'll I'll go look at a guide and it's not the end of the world but it does take away from the feeling that you are investigating what chronicles does so well is that one when you're investigating a room it marks what you've already looked at which is like i cannot believe None of the other games had that, or at least the ones I played, maybe the 3DS ones do. It would be marked visually, but it was sometimes easy to miss like where exactly I'm supposed to look because the cursor doesn't really change at all. Here, Mm -hmm. if it's something that is like a discrete object that you can look at, the cursor will like flash a little bit. And then once you've looked at it, it will have like a red check mark over it, which I think just one that, that makes the world of a difference. The other is that now we are blessed with the presence of Herlock Sholmes, who is truly one of the best characters in video games i would say uh and his whole thing is that he's a really comedic and over the top uh interpretation of sherlock holmes um and he shows up to like you know amaze everyone with his deduction skills and he's he's always off by like a little bit like he he shows up (laughs) and like suzato your your like partner in the game who's sort of like maya's stand-in which i'll get to but she points out she's like he's always like 
on the right path, but just messes up the thing he like settles on. Yeah. Like he's always like looking in the right direction or like he's all the right evidence and always the wrong conclusions. Yeah. Based on that evidence. Yeah. One of the funniest things I've seen in a long time, just in general, there's an investigation scene where there's a locked suitcase and there's a sign on the wall that says like weapons and pets are prohibited. So they come to the conclusion that it's a pet in there and like everyone's guessing like what it is. And he was like, allow me to demonstrate. It's obviously a chicken. Consider the benefits. And he like all this dramatic <laughs> music is playing. It's like, what? there's not a chicken in there, man. Like, you're so, But it's what the game does so well is like he is right sometimes and he's so charming and, and like like the characters in the game, you can't help but like want to believe him because like mm-hmm. he has such a fun way of describing it. But, but the main character is always like, am I the only one hearing him? Like he's clearly wrong right <laughs> so funny i love it i love that that addition and the way they market like it still has some of the same pitfalls but it's i think way better and there are even some mysteries that play out entirely outside of the courtroom so it's not always like yeah the investigations can kind of serve as their own little chapter as opposed to just set up for the court case totally yeah i think that's a really smart decision for this game i also if i recall correctly because I, I i brought this game to the show before um yeah if, if i recall correctly in japan he is still sherlock holmes but they had yes. to change his name here just yes. because of like weird uh, copyright stuff because of arthur conan doyle's like nightmare like family ip thing right um well documented but anyway this is one of the rare situations where I think we got the better end of the deal because yes. him being Herlock Sholmes and it's always perfect. being a little yeah. bit wrong is like <laughs> so on point. It's incredible. What what I'll what I'll say about this game because I I have not continued playing it past when I first brought it to the show is that I really think I did myself a disservice playing it before playing the Phoenix Wright games mm. because they're so weirdly kind of like God of War so referential to the Phoenix Wright trilogy specifically like not even any of the spinoffs like not the Apollo Justice stuff not the Miles Edgeworth games that we never even got to play but it seems like they're so referential to specifically Phoenix Wright one two and three that now I feel like if I went back and started them again I. Would be like oh I, I i'm understanding this reference i get why this character is funny etc 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 but it would also serve to highlight the things that you're bringing up that i really liked about the phoenix right games that i feel like i kind of lost as i got further into the trilogy this game kind of just rectifies all of that it almost feels like a redo in a way of like the core structure of how these games should work which i absolutely i'm stoked about because you just get like the best of all worlds in that scenario where like yeah the game is more fun to play and the characters are more fun to be around so there's nothing to lose here. The premise is essentially it, it takes place in the uh, Meiji period in Japan, which is essentially the same time as the Victorian era in England. And it yeah. marks a period in Japan's history where they kind of transition from being an isolationist nation to like, you know, sort of meeting Western countries and, and sort of adopting some of Western culture. So that, that's also just a great like historical backdrop for this game in general. Like I think mm. seeing a lot of the characters and also the courtrooms sort of like adopts to what is like a a sudden change in culture and like yeah sort of navigating that and also navigating like on a more mechanical level like how law works in both places because in this game like a british courtroom operates differently than a japanese courtroom so in in japan the judge has the final verdict whereas in britain it's the jury and you experience both which i think was also a really smart uh really smart decision is that you you start in a japanese courtroom in the beginning of the game and then the further in you get the more you know 
you end up traveling to London and you experience what's going on in, in that courtroom. It was very smart. Very smart. What, what's cool, too, is so it's essentially, you know, it takes place in a, in a very different era than the original trilogy, which is sort of like a unless I don't know if they specify a year, but the original trilogy feels like kind of like a nameless present. You know, it's sort of like yeah. modern day in some capacity. I think as evidenced by Phoenix Wright's Nokia cell phone uh, <laughs> that he has in the original trilogy, uh, they, they they are supposed to be set when they came out. That reminds me of Trauma Center when a character is like, we're in the not too distant future when you can just have weird gel that cures all wounds. Like just to explain <laughs> why that's happening. But uh, yeah, that's great. But here, you know, we're around 100 years before the original trilogy. And there are clearly like sort of I think the main character, uh, Ryonosuke, I believe, is actually like an ancestor of Phoenix, right? Yes. Other characters, I don't know if they're like actually related. And I'm really glad. So like there are clear stand-ins. So like Ryonosuke is the Phoenix character, probably the most similar. Like they have very similar behavior. They're sort of like always... Spiky hair. Uh, <laughs> actually, he doesn't have spiky hair, oh, but yeah, right. he also sweats a lot. Uh, he gets very nervous. He has the objection. Honestly, small spoilers, but what's so great about this game's first case is seeing him turn into the lawyer like you know mm. i won't i won't give away the specifics but like you can tell he's trying to do the iconic phoenix right movements in the beginning so like he hasn't quite said objection yet and whenever he slams the desk it's like a light slapping sound that he like looks at like what that's what i did um <laughs> the, the sound effects in this game are so funny and it really is just like a lot of them are what's in the ds version but like playing it on the tv you get a sense of like how perfectly timed all the dialogue and the jokes are it's, it's like one of the right. best written games like from from like a timing and like blocking standpoint like the comedy is unbelievable and it's so hard to do comedy well in games we've often talked about like mm -hmm. not even just like we're we're like hard to please just like it's a, it's a hard medium to tell jokes in but ace attorney it almost feels like like puppet theater at a certain point because everyone has like these like limited motions and like it's it's just blocked out in a way that feels very mechanical yeah so cool so ryanosuke is, is phoenix and suzato is sort of like maya and that she's the sidekick but she's very different she's not really like maya at all other than some like they have similar um animations so like they'll have like different like poses that are kind of harkening back to the older games but like maya always created trouble and like always stuck her nose in places like she shouldn't go whereas suzato is like actually the sort of straight-laced one who like literally like toss ryonosuke if he like goes in <laughs> right. the wrong direction so i like that they're playing with a different dynamic there it's not just like here's maya in the past like suzato is a totally unique character even if she's filling a similar role and that goes too for kazuma is sort of sort of the Maya mentor, but also a very different character. Mm -hmm. um, or excuse me, the Mia mentor. And like, it's just, it's kind of amazing. Like you think that after so many games and so many spinoffs, like they would run out of like fun original characters to create. And then Herlock Sholmes shows up and like completely <laughs> steals the show. And I just think that this game also, I think balances tone much better. Well, I think that the first game is incredible and like set the foundation so well there is a little bit of like, oh, that feels weird. Where like something really tragic will happen and it's not really like directly commented on or like the comedy will happen too soon after. This yeah. game like really gives 
like dramatic moments the time they deserve. And even someone like Herlock Sholmes will like show respect or somberness in, in moments that call for it. And it feels mm. real. It feels that these are real care as, as goofy as they are. And as many like, you know, weird animations they have, like they all feel really human. I think my one critique of this game is that everything takes a little too long. Like everything is like, like maybe a half hour longer than it should be. Like the first case is awesome. Like this game opens it's with great, a case yeah. that would normally be like the third or fourth case in a different Ace Attorney game. But it's like, it's a little long. Like there's a little too many, like people say this is it at least five times in that case where it's like, <laughs> it's all, it's all down to this. Right. And that's kind of the fun. Like as soon as you think you have it, there's another angle to look at. But I do think it sometimes can feel a little taxing, especially when you just sort of want to see what's next because this game is like got a really great setup and i would say that even in the first two episodes that really still feels like the first act of this game like i feel like it's really just starting now when they're going to london but like Mm -hmm. in all ace attorney games that setup always pays off like even if it feels like the pacing could be off like that is really crucial to experience to get the joy that comes later I would say that this game definitely does benefit from having a strong attachment to the series, but I do think it does work as a standalone entry. I think it 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 could theoretically be your first game and I think you'll get everything that I'm getting out of it. I think so too. Yeah, I enjoyed it enough when I first checked it out, um but just like not enough to continue on and now that I've played the original trilogy, I feel like I, I'll go give them another shot and probably enjoy them more, but I I know plenty of people who have played just this release specifically and really enjoyed it. And I've also heard that the second one is maybe even better than the first one in a lot of ways too. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. Uh, which is exciting because the first one is so good. So I don't know. And they, they tell a continuous story. So it's kind of right. like a mini, it's a duology, I guess. Yeah. I'm really curious what comes next for this series after this. Cause like there are rumors of a Ace Attorney seven, but it, those rumors were also slated for around the same time this came out. So like it could just have been this, right? I would love to see more uh, of this series, but I also like, this does in some ways feel like a compilation of like the best of everything in like a new package mm-hmm. that I, I wouldn't mind if this was like kind of the swan song of the series too i think they should go to the future cyberpunk phoenix right <laughs> that's i mean this, this this game opens up so many possibilities of like you know you could tell this story in distinct periods fantasy sci-fi <laughs> okay <laughs> horror uh-huh mario <laughs> All right, right, I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off at Mario. I think you got to get some food in you. Paper Herlock. I really like this game. I would strongly (laughs) recommend it. Uh, I'm having the best time with it. I will probably see it through all the way. Maybe I'll bring it up again if I have anything more to say. But yeah, I'm just I just think it's like it's cool to see how the series has refined itself, but is also still like totally loyal to what made it great. Yeah. And I'm having the best time with it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend it as well. Glad it's on Switch as well. Um, yeah. one, one thing that's worth noting, especially having played, because if you listen to the DS bonus, you might remember I, I mentioned that I played the Phoenix Wright games in a really weird way where I played the first one on DS and then the second one on mobile and the third one on Switch, um, yeah. just to kind of like get the progression of how they're all ported to different places to see like if there's a best place to play them, I guess. And very specifically, I feel like the, the DS version and that art is like, it's really, really, really good. And you do lose something a little bit on the switch, I think, yeah. by way of like 
I don't I don't know if they just like ran it through like a filter or something, but it definitely looks a little bit like processed. It doesn't look as much like hand drawn as it does look processed. I think it's also because it was like essentially pixel art on the DS. So once you get rid of those grids, it kind of just looks like smoothed over. That's what I mean. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it looks yeah. it looks like they kind of like took the pixel art and then like ran it through something uh, yeah. in, in some cases. And Great as Attorney Chronicles looks stunning because it's all it's like from the ground up like hand drawn specifically for those games and just looks so beautiful um by there's comparison. some great cutscenes too like in the beginning of each chapter there's like a full like yeah like animated uh intro that's always so great. cool yeah i don't know if it exists i know there's an anime for like the original trilogy but i would love to watch an anime of like this specific one yeah uh just based on what they show in the game but also there's an option that's interesting in this game where uh one you can auto play the dialogue which is great great uh if you're tired of hitting a but the other option is that there's a there's a mode where you can essentially just have the game solve everything on its own so you can literally just watch the whole thing whoa that's wild which like i do think like I'm like mixed on on like if I would want to do that, but I do think it's cool that that exists because so much of the game is already, you know, reading and and and, you know, it's a very like TV esque experience. Mm -hmm. I I can see that on a replay if I wanted to replay it, but I didn't want to like go through the motions again. I could do that, but um, it does exist if if uh, you're someone who just wants to watch it. Basically, that is interesting to me specifically because I I found that when I was playing the third one on Switch, like I would make a meal or something, like lunch or dinner or something, and then I would sit down and play some Ace Attorney and and needing to like eat food and then like pick up the controller and like do some stuff and then watch a bunch of cutscenes and then whatever. Maybe in those moments specifically where it's like I've just made a meal for myself, I'll just like turn that on for a little bit and then turn it back off when I'm done eating and like keep playing just to like actually watch it like TV. That could be that could be fun. That could be really interesting. Yeah. Greatest Turning Chronicles. Very good. Very good video game. It's great. Very good video games. That's true. Two games. You got two in there in the Chronicles. You love to see it. Cool. You want to wrap up Herlock? I would love to wrap up the show well this episode of the show to be to be yeah. clear uh the show <laughs> <laughs> uh we could probably make it quick because we mentioned all of it at the top but uh into yeah. the castle online it's where everything exists exactly and uh, i'm excited to share the paper mario bonus and we were joined by our editor aj we had a great yeah. time with them it was a, it was a good session that's already out if you're listening to this uh which is great whoops so. well i'm excited for it now in the present <laughs> so that episode will be out and team paper will have lost and you'll know all the secrets <laughs> to the universe mm-hmm. so look forward to all of that and more dear listener uh and thank you so much for listening as we say every week uh it's really wonderful the animation of Herlock Sholmes kind of like boxing at nothing is like, I actually like had to take a walk because I was so inspired after seeing that. It's great. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Anyway, Her- have a wonderful Herlock. day. Never forget Team Paper and what they went through. <laughs> <laughs> what they went through to try and succeed. Yeah. It's the story of our time. Goodbye, everybody. My name is Brendan Bigley. You can find me on the internet at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You find me at Stephen Hilger. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye. Bye. I enjoy paper. TWG, the worst garbage, the online.